The podcast you're listening to is part of Sequelcast 2 and Friends, which is a member of the Batman on Film Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. There I were, resting. And upon a sudden, I hear an ungodly row on deck. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2. Sequel Cast 2 is a podcast looking at movie franchises one at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is William Thrasher. Ahoy there, mateys. Skull Dugger the Poop Deck and Batten the Rubies. Ahoy hoy. Uh, we, are ha- um, we have a special guest here as we talk about Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. That's the fourth film for those keeping track. We have special guests and fan of the show... Alex Miller, he's a writer for uh, Battleship Retention and Film Inquiry, and he has a YouTube series, The Trailer Project. Alex, welcome back to Sequel Cast 2. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Yes, you're RBC Dog. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. So, um, we, we've we been chatting a bit uh, back and forth over the past few weeks, Alex, uh, working to get you on the show. And one thing I'm not too clear is, is have you ever seen the Pirates uh, movies before? Or have you been kind of marathoning them for the first time this week? Um, it's kind of like the first time. Um, when the first one came out in theaters, it was like a big to-do. So I actually saw that one in the movies. And then by the time the second one was out, I think I was in like my too cool for school phase. Yeah, yeah. It was like, oh, it's just CG Hollywood, what have you, you know. So I didn't really revisit them. And then actually over the past couple of years, David Bax on the on the B Battleship Pretension podcast. Mm-hmm. It brings up the original Gore Verbinski trilogy, how great they are. So I've been meaning mm. to rewatch them. So in tandem with uh, preparing for the show and kind of getting a little bit of a nudge from David's praise, I've been eager to rewatch them. It's been kind of fun going down this little crash course of, uh, of uh, you know, pirate, what have you. So fun. It, it does make you realize how um, few pirate movies they there are, and kind of like westerns and musicals and so forth, they're considered a risk because they're expensive, and you're filming on water, more to the point. Um, yeah. More often than not. <laughs> and, and it's also a period piece, right? So, I mean, all that stuff. I mean, the one in the in the 90s, the pirate film, I think we haven't mentioned this one yet, Thrasher, but Cutthroat Island, right? Was considered... Which is really the only recent recent-ish pirate movie I can think of. There's like, there's that Pirates of the Penzance from the early 80s, but then that's it. Like, the, uh, there was a Walter, uh, Walter Matt... All the way back to the Errol Flynn era. Yeah, I think Walter Matthau did a movie called Pirates or something, rather, in the 80s, and, and there's a really weird Australian film called, like, The Pirate Musical um, that has some numbers from Pirates of Penzance, but also has some original musical sequences about engorged organs and so forth. It's very weird. Uh-huh. The pumping and the blowing of yes, that's, the song. That's it. Um, yeah, that that is. That, <laughs> we, we could do that as a special episode. I think that, so. Which also yeah. may very well be the first movie. And keep in mind, this was in the '80s to make 
a disparaging remark about the age of the Rolling Stones. I believe in their version of Modern Major General, that is one of the lines. I'm older than the Beatles, but I'm younger than the Rolling Stones. <laughs> and, and we could fit that into sequel cast, too, because it's a quasi-remake, reimagining, I suppose, in the literal sense yeah, of, of Penzance, so... Non-Caribbean-based pirate movies. There's Treasure Island. Yes, Treasure Island, of course. There's a whole lot of versions of those. Muppets, Treasure Islands, which we talked about when we did the Muppet films years ago. But that's neither here nor there. Pirates of the Caribbean. What was that, Thrasher? Treasure Planet. Oh, yeah, there's Treasure Planet. Um, That's okay. You know, I think Treasure Planet is better than Atlantis. uh, If we're talking about... um, that weird period of Disney where they hadn't gone full CG yet and they uh, kind of had a few flop Um Not as bad as uh, what Home on the Range, the animated cow musical cartoon that features Roseanne Barr as the voice of a cow. The only one that is more forgotten than Brother Bear. Brother Bear had a direct-to-video sequel, but all of that, that doesn't really... It's not unique to Disney shows. Sequel cast two special episode too. <laughs> yeah, no, certainly. I think that, you know, we've done Disney stuff a lot on Sequelcast 2, and we'll get back to Pirates 4 in a second, dear listeners, but one I've been curious about is Cinderella, because apparently in Cinderella 3, it's a time travel story. Huh. Cinderella 3, by the way. Yeah, uh, I think it's called A Twist in Time or something, as, as Maudlin <laughs> is that, but it, it's like a time travel, uh, yeah, it's a time travel story, which is the last thing I would expect with a Cinderella sequel. But, uh, um, if you drive the pumpkin at 88 miles per hour, <laughs> serious shit. I feel like they might have to measure that in knots. <laughs> <laughs> if you drive the pumpkin at 88 knots, you're going to see some serious shit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, speaking of serious shit, Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. That's what we call a segue, ladies and gentlemen. Directed by Rob Marshall, um, which is an interesting choice. You know, Verbinski didn't come back. Uh, one thing he was trying, Verbinski was trying to get off the ground was an adaptation of the video game Bioshock, um, which well, didn't... That's right. Yeah, which didn't happen because it would have cost a gazillion dollars. Um, but that would have been cool. I wish that would have happened. But, you know, uh, Rod Marshall has a big history of um, doing a lot of theater work and was nominated for doing choreography for things like... Uh, Kiss of the Spider Woman, a 90s revival of Damn Yankees, which is a very old musical. Um, oh, that was the one with uh, Jerry Lewis is the devil, wasn't it? Uh, I think so, when he did it, yeah. Um, I've seen the original 50s movie, and I saw it at a dinner theater production in Florida once, um, which was okay. But, um, but you know, mainly his theatrical stuff, with the except, with this is like the weird exception. Uh, aside from this movie and Memoirs of a Geisha, which I rather enjoyed, most of the stuff he does uh, on the big uh, screen is musicals. You know, Chicago, um, yeah. Nine, which is not very good, features Fergie in a musical number on a beach, um, Into the Woods, and then the Mary Poppins Returns. And apparently he's the director for the live-action version they're doing of The Little Mermaid, for Christ's sake. So, wow. there you go. Um we know I can I can see his director's eye as far as choreography is concerned because more so I think than the previous three films, this movie really does take advantage of the space the characters inhabit. And we get a dance sequence on a boat. So, um, yeah, this one uh, was written by Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio, who wrote the other uh, films, um, loosely based on the novel On Stranger Tides by Tim Powers, 
and uh, stars the usual game of idiots, but also adds on Ian McShane and Penelope Cruz with music by Hans Zimmer, cinematography Darius Wolski. Um, that's the same DP as the other films. Edited by David Brenner and Wyatt Smith. I just say the editors because I like editors. Um, with a, a running time of 137 minutes, which I think is the shortest movie in the series this far, perhaps. Um, off a budget of, uh, according to Box Office Mojo, $410 million, it made a little bit over a billion. So, although um, this has been, geez, what, like five years or something between this and the last movie worldwide, you know, this did very, very well. Um, so, Alex, what, what did you think of this movie? Some initial impressions watching it. So, you know, like after going on a little crash course marathon of the first three Pirates movies, like the first one, I was like, wow, this is, um, I forgot how much fun this is. And then the mm -hmm. second one, had more fun and uh the third one we actually just watched this morning i haven't seen it yet and uh, i was like these are these are brilliant these are just great what a great little uh you know set of films and then we got the stranger tides and <laughs> i'm familiar with raw marshall mm -hmm. uh, chicago was fun nine's not um i wasn't crazy on memoirs of a geisha and uh what else is there I'm excited about the Mary Poppins film. I'd actually like to see that. Um, this one just didn't have that kind of like spark of imagination and like I guess movie magic. I felt like the other three films did. It felt it, just a flat. Yeah, it. I, I think it, it feels a bit labored. It makes uh, reminds me of a Japanese phrase called gaiden, which means side story. Which, if you're talking about comic books, you'd call like a one shot or something. It feels like a spin off of the pirate character. Yeah, the pirates of the Caribbean. Uh -huh. Like it, it feels. Yeah, it feels inconsequential. Thrasher, what are, what are some initial thoughts you had of this picture? Well, overall, I, I enjoyed it. I had a good time, but boy, howdy, does this drag in the middle. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, and also, like, it's, uh, I think I timed it. It's nearly 40 minutes until Ian McShane comes on screen. Yeah, and that's a hard, hard 40 minutes, because he comes close to saving this thing. <laughs> He he is amazing. He is the perfect actor to play Blackbeard. I think Even so. Yeah. A fictionalized version. That's just a stroke of brilliance there. Like it is, and he was coming off of the the Deadwood, which Deadwood is getting a. Uh, I'm really excited. They're getting a, a movie on HBO to close out the series. Yeah, that um, kind of blows my mind. I don't want to get too into it to get off topic, but right. I'm a Edward fanatic. I've seen the show yes. up and down and left and right a hundred and million different times. I could probably quote it verbatim. Um, so I'm, I'm like nervous and excited, equal parts for this Deadwood movie to happen. So. They've been talking about it for years. They finished filming um, not that long ago. And uh, as of this recording, and uh, I, yeah, I'm I'm hopeful. It's the showrunner I think is doing the script and directing it and stuff. And it uh, it if anything else, it'll probably have more of the most creative cursing on television. Oh yeah. Also, too, I think that's like the most unageable cast. Like Ian Machine looks the same. Mm -hmm. uh, same. Um, uh, John Hawks looks the same. The woman that played, um, you know, the widow Garrett looks the same. Uh, yeah, they all kind of didn't really, they didn't really age very much. So it's not going to really look too out of place or anything like that. It's not going to Twin Peaks Return where it's like 25 years later, you know. Yeah, God, that's almost a topic in itself. But Twin Peaks: The Return is, was was uh, uh, quite something. Yeah, um, yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with actors aging, you know. That happens. no, yes, it does happen. Um, 
Thrasher, uh, so let's see, like Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. Uh, from what I gathered in my research on Stranger Tides was a pirate novel by Tim Powers that was also an inspiration for the computer game series uh, Secret of Monkey Island. Yes, it it's, it's, uh, has a reputation for being a very fun, high-seas adventure novel with a lot of supernatural and horror elements. Uh, I unfortunately, and I, I do know of its influence on Monkey Island, unfortunately I have, this is on my reading list, this is something I have always wanted to read since finding out that it exists, and I, I would love to finally read it and compare it and contrast it to this adaptation. Did you ever play the Monkey Island computer games, uh, Alex? Uh, were they old school Mac games or DOS games? If they were Mac games, I might have played it. But they might have had versions of it released on Macintosh. Originally, they were DOS, um, but they were the the sort of adventure games like a King's Quest or something, the sort of more funny and had a sort of pirate setting. Okay. Uh, so, uh, and specifically, those games have a bad guy, LeChuck, who <laughs> looks a lot like Blackbeard in this movie. Um, and there's a lot of voodoo stuff with him in uh, a few of the games. So, I mean, th those were sort of surface things I, I thought were similar to those computer games. But again, I'm, like Thrasher, I have not read uh, the Stranger Tide novels. Uh, and I, um, if I were a better host, perhaps I would have. But, I, I, you know, I think it's, it, it is quite interesting that you have the fourth movie in a franchise being loosely based off a novel. That's interesting, yeah, because it was a you know a ride at Disney World. <laughs> yes, there you have a five movie series off a ride of Disney World is ridiculous. I, I, I'm thinking maybe there's an alternate dimension in which uh, the the Country Bears had a had a quintet of films and not Pirates <laughs> of the Caribbean with uh, uh, Haley Joel Osment you know coming back for each film and Christopher Walken popping up now and then. And um, the fourth one we also have Ian McShane. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, a bunch of, like, writers in a boardroom. It's like, well, we had, you know, a, a runaway success with a trilogy of films based on a ride. Let's go to a book. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think maybe the fourth film in this alternate universe would, would be a crossover between Country Bears and uh, Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, it's uh, it's just funny that it, that's the, uh, the path that the series went into. Yeah, and yet... Um... Guillermo del Toro, uh, not that long ago, pitched Disney on on doing his own version of the Haunted Mansion, and they turned him down. So, really, allegedly, there you go. Um, well, the, the that, that's what I'd like to more of. You know, I'd love to get mm -hmm. into his head what his interpretation of the Haunted Mansion would be. Well, that being said, I'm sure most of his ideas for his Haunted Mansion movie are going to show up in another movie in about five years. Well, and a lot of people say he, he allegedly took his, I don't know why I'm saying allegedly, I'm not going to get sued probably, but um, they were, uh, some of those ideas he took into his, oh, what was that Haunted House movie he did? I can't remember the name of it. Oh, Crimson Peak? Crimson Peak, there you go. Just watched that a little while ago, actually. Holds up. Nice costume design. Uh, also nice costumes, Pirates, we should stick to the topic, boys. Um, pirates! of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. I actually kind of liked the beginning of this film, but certainly, I mean, Jesus Christ, it takes forever for like the plot to get started. Yeah. One of the, be the beginning is fun. I like how, you know, it's it begins, again, with people talking about a hanging, but it's certainly nowhere near as bleak uh, as, uh, as 
the previous film. Um, but I do, I do like the bait and switch where you think Jack Sparrow's going to be on trial, but it's, it's not, it's his first mate. Just oh, yeah. assumes he's Jack Sparrow and that Jack Sparrow is wearing a wig and is impersonating a judge and is bribing people and messing with uh, the whole trial. And then you get that great chase sequence with him oh, driving yeah. in and out uh, of carts and robbing wealthy old dowagers. Uh, it's, it's, it's just great, great fun. Uh, and, and of course, something something that I I love is being a, a wee bit of a history buff. Uh, I love Jack Sparrow being dragged in front of Mad King George, who's going <laughs> to yeah. try to press him into service to the crown. That was brilliant. That was a good bit of business. And like the first act is fun. It has like a good little sense of humor. Like mm-hmm. you said, the little out where he gets dragged to the court and everything, and the second he lowers his glasses, you see the, uh, you know, eye shatter, and you're like, oh, ha of course. It, it did strike me as strange that he didn't try to, like, disguise his voice at all. He still uses his Jack Sparrow voice. You know, pre well, media, you know, people didn't know what he sounded like. They just I, I, like yeah, he didn't. The, the, there weren't iPhones in pirate times, and, uh... Well, I, well, I, I, he does try to have a bit more of an even cadence, so he doesn't sound drunk, though he still yeah, sort of yeah. sounds like Jack Sparrow. Um, and, and, the other thing I, I really like with the, the business with, with Mad King George and the reintroduction of Captain Barbosa as a privateer, he's gone straight, as it were. Um, I, <laughs> and he has I, a pancake well, makeup on his face, I think is really neat. Like, he has the white face makeup and the wig, and yeah. Yeah, they really capture that, like, old-timey, you know, stately, you know, um, pomposity that the, you know, royalty people were known for. The other thing, thing I like, which is probably a good thing to do in the first film of your series, is there is a bit of self-parody. Like, I just love the gag where they have Jack Sparrow on irons, and he keeps wanting to swagger and do his elaborate hand gestures, and it just makes him back it every time he does it. I have to give points to the character actor Richard Griffiths as King George II. He's, he looks delightfully jolly. It's... Yeah. It, it's just as you expect a king to look in the Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Because the other ones, I don't think this is the first one that you have a scene in London town, as they say. And uh, it's it, it, it's nice that it's a bit of a scope. And when he's running on top of the carriages and so forth in that chase scene that you mentioned, Thrasher, it made me think, like, wow, a, a Pirates of the Caribbean kind of Grand Theft Auto-style game could be kind of cool. Um, but you, you just... It's a, it's a sense of fun. I think you have that right, uh, Alex. It, it feels more like that first film in the beginning, and then you have a, a little bit of a mystery in the plot, and that there's someone else, an imposter, Jack, Jack Sparrow, and that Jack Sparrow fights against who you think is himself, but it's really not. Right, and like that's like one part where I kind of regret having that like extra textual thing because like I knew it had Penelope Cruz, mm. I knew it did the recurring characters of um, you know of Bloom and Knightley. Yep. So I was like, okay, we got an imposter Jack Sparrow. It's probably going to be Penelope Cruz. There's a little bit of a, you know, effeminate swagger in this little duel. And um, so, you know, I kind of called it coming. It probably wouldn't have been a better reveal if I went in blind, you know. But um, that was a, a good bit of business. And then once you get all this set up, it just kind of comes to this, like, grinding halt. It's like cartoonish tires screeching. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, like, totally. Oh, you know, it's like it, it kind of just takes all the wind out of your sails for a Yeah, I I, I do wish I do wish they had teased out the whole plot idea of an imposter jack a little bit longer. I mean, it, Oh, and there's so much comedic chops you could get out of that. I mean, like 
Well, could you imagine a scene where both Jacks are in front of a crew and they're both trying to prove that they're the real one? Oh yeah, that was my that was what was so great about the start of the third one with him and Jeffrey Rush both playing captain, you know what I mean? Mm, yeah. Like, man, kills, you know. Like, who's captain? Ah, you know, that that was great you know, that was a great bit of comedy. But the thing though is that like here it's that like I feel like with the Gore Verbinski movies there was so much more depth in the sets and the and the uh, you know, um, art decoration and the costumes, things were so much more plush and like lived in you had all these like little small details like candles of wax built up on the bottom of the stem and like you know a, a bottle all wrapped in rope and stuff like that and here things felt just like a little half realized like they didn't have that like yucky gross lived in feel you know like barnacles all over everything and, and brine and just shit all over stuff it feels almost a little too clean. Yeah, it, it feels it feels less Verhovian and more uh, Disney, for the lack of a better phrase. It, right, it, right. It's like when nothing's happening, you have that happening, so it's more interesting to look at. <laughs> so that's why the slow moments in this movie really dragged for me. That's that was like one of my main uh, sources of contention. I also think Red Marshall uses more close-ups than Verbinski. Uh, yeah. A lot of like dry cutting. The editing seems mm -hmm. really dry. Verbinski can really take advantage of a frame and really get the camera moving. Whereas like, um, what was it? Once they um, get on Blackbeard's ship and you see like the fire and what have you, you just kind of get these reaction shots. Cut back to fire. Cut back to a reaction. There's no like sweeping vistas, you know, that that made the other films feel so epic and fun. Yeah, um, I, I read a, a, a book once, I wish I remember what it was called, but they refer to that style as directing as, like, dump truck directing, in which you're like, okay, master shot, close-up, close-up, reaction shot, reaction shot, and it's more uh, utilitarian, which which can work, but um, you're doing a pirate film, a fantasy film, really, uh, for fuck's sake. Like, have some fun with it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you've got the coolest franchise, you know, happening right now. You've got the you got a cast of star, you know, great stars, and, you know, I'm sure, you know, limitless amount of money. Just go nuts with it, man. Just get freaky with it, dude. You know, that's what they did before, and it worked great. Yeah, the boat, um, I was, years ago, I was reading some thread, and, and they were talking about, if you could give anyone a shitload of money to do any, like, franchise movie, what would it be? And someone had the brilliant suggestion of Stephen Chow doing Ninja Turtles. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And I've had this, like, you know, I've had this whole argument the whole time where, like, instead of having, you know, Keanu Reeves learn Kung Fu from Yun and Ping, why not just cast Jet Li in The Matrix? <laughs> sure, yeah. yeah. Like, you know, maybe the second uh, movie, you know, series wouldn't suck. But anyway, I, I don't want to get too off the topic, but... um. So, 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 Thrasher, what do you think about when you get to the, the, after the sort of labored setup... You finally get to see the baddie of the film, Ian McShane as Blackbeard. I I love I love Ian McShane as Blackbeard. As I said before, brilliant casting, um, and I like their bent on Blackbeard, where he's like a, a, he, a student of the occult and has all these weird, freaky powers. And and yet they delay it. It, it is, because it, it's not only really strange that they delay the reveal that it's Ian McShane and Blackbeard for so long, they delay that it's Blackbeard for so long. Yeah. 
and 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 that's something that like I don't understand like what why does Blackbeard need a fake Jack Sparrow to build a crew? <laughs> that he's so feared, no pirate wants to serve under him. Because I could I could completely go for that. That I could understand. But nobody really seems freaked out by him, even when all of his subordinates are zombies and he can make the ship come to life and kill people. Yeah, and he's also like a voodoo master too. Right, because because he he sort of summons the ropes and they're they're uh, it's not especially great CG, but the ropes are like untangling themselves and tying themselves around people's feet and neck and throwing them around like it's a rope octopus or something. Um, it, it's a it's an idea that maybe it read better in the script. I don't think that pulled off that well. But on the other hand, he he has a thing where he sends a guy out to sea, and then he activates a flamethrower from the, the front of the ship, which I think is a pretty cool visual. Um, yeah, the, the flamethrower is, or I guess presumably, I guess that's the th even the thing about the flamethrower. Maybe they're trying to go for some verisimilitude, and maybe he just happens to have Greek fire on his ship. On the <laughs> other hand, it's a mad, he can do magic stuff, so why not make a ship shoot fire if he wants to? It got reminded me of I was just about to say that, yeah, where Dr. No has the tank that shoots flames, and the locals right. think, like, oh, we got the dragon on the island, man. Uh, uh, what, you know, what I think it is, and it's the same, the same problem, I think, with the previous two films, there's too much supernatural stuff going on. We've got, mm -hmm. we've got Blackbeard, his magic, but then we also have the quest for the Fountain of Youth, but then we also have mermaids. Right. Well, and also, too, like, I remember when we got to Blackbeard and um, when he gets on, when um, Jack Sparrow gets some time with him, he's like, oh, you know, they said they cut off your head and you swam to shore and all this other shit. And I was like, all right, don't make Blackbeard this, like, you know, godlike, crazy zombie guy. Can we just have straight-up pirate stuff? Yeah, because, yeah. Well, I'm like, the whole thing is that, like, um, you know, Johnny Depp and all his performance after... Keith Richards, which we all know, and then, you know, like, I love his interpretation as this kind of, like, foppish, effeminate, mm. you know, oddball, misfit guy. Like, I love Johnny Depp doing this, but then when you have Ian McShane come in, you have this, like, juxtaposition of, like, contemporary Johnny Depp and then, like, old-school, badass, old-fashioned embodiment, you know, of, like, you know, tear your head off Ian McShane stuff. So I was like, all right, cool. You have these two contrasts of like pirate lore. Like, let's discover this. Let's let's get into it, you know. And they didn't. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, well, if I could actually touch on something you mentioned about like mentioning that his head was cut off and he swam to shore, that's actually part of the Blackbeard lore. Um, so there's hmm. um, there a lot of crazy Blackbeard legends. He used to like light his beard on fire and run around with like muskets and shit. But uh, just so, just to, to, to sound to sound braggy, uh, I'm just gonna say I've been to Ocracoke, uh, North Carolina, which is off the shore of Ocracoke, where the historical Blackbeard was uh, was finally came to his end. But that's long been the story because after after he was killed, they cut his head off as a trophy and threw the body overboard. And the legend has always been that the body didn't sink into the ocean; it started yeah. swimming towards its head like it was trying to reclaim it. Hmm. He's like Rasputin of Pirates. Yeah! <laughs> well, yeah, he was supposed sure. to be shot and stabbed like 12 or so times before. Wow. According to some accounts. Yeah, that's it, cool. They, they should have explored that a little more. Yeah, it's, it's too bad. Uh, 
Alan Rickman didn't play uh, Blackbeard because he played Rasputin once in a TV movie. <laughs> oh. I'll get you, Jack Sparrow. I can only be Rasputin once. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but oh, I, I have to ask. So I love, I absolutely love uh, Penelope Cruz uh, as Angelica. I think she gets some. I think she plays off of Jack uh, really well. She's her own character. She's fine with her own motivations. But what do you think about this angle where she's Blackbeard's daughter, but they keep going back and forth about her lying or telling the truth about that part of her background? I think it's stupid. They're trying to make it like Star Wars, where everyone is fucking related to each other. And it's not needed. It's too, it's too much. The, these pirates movies all have too complicated of a storyline, and I, I don't think that's quite needed. That, that she is someone that uh, formerly had a relationship with Jack Sparrow, and I think he has a pretty good scene where he talks to Mister Gibbs, and it was like, uh, oh, did you like her? No. Did you have feelings for her? No. But I had a little more than stirrings. Oh, you're a dick or something. Like, you know, the line, the dialogue is something like that, and I, I thought that was sort of a nice thing. And, uh, yeah, she, she um, has a lot of energy to her performance, and, and she's quite good. But, uh, Alex, what do you think about that relationship between her and Blackbeard and how they try to make that kind of a subplot? I was eager to, I was eager to elaborate on this because um, I feel the same way you do in some respects that Penelope Cruz, in my opinion, is uniformly great. I'm always excited to see her in things. Um, so I was excited to see her in this, and then the whole Blackbeard mother, uh, uh not mother, um, <laughs> father, daughter, <laughs> yeah. that, that would, would be a twist. Would be a twist, yeah. <laughs> um, M. Night Shyamalan would be a twist. Anyway, so, that was interesting. And the courtship of, of Jack Sparrow and her, and that, that little one-liner where, um, where she's like, you know, why did you come to, like, a convent? And he's like, oh, I thought it was a brothel. You know, I thought that was a good little bit of comedy. And what I started, what what I started thinking of was like this guy, this like up and coming pirate, was like, oh, I'm gonna date Blackbeard's daughter. Like, uh, yeah, I'm gonna get this is my fast track to pirate fame. You know, like I thought that would have been a cool narrative to explore. Yep, I can agree with that. Right, and that was another like dangling. You know, it, it's annoying to play like, um, you know, what if or if I ran the zoo with movies and what they didn't do. But, like, that would have been interesting and funny and cool. Like, you know, the, this franchise is known for being fun and it's known for having action. So you have those possibilities there to, like, elaborate on these characters. And they didn't really take advantage of that. They just might as well have had Penelope Cruz be, you know, her, you know, might as well have been her uh, Blackbeard's, you know, first mate or whatever. Beyond, beyond that, for me is that with, with Blackbeard and Angelica at no point did I ever buy the relationship between the two. No, not for a second. It just mm. all seemed like plot contrivance. I, I really could not buy that she would care that deeply for him. I did not I didn't buy that he would care deeply for her, but I also didn't buy that he would stab her in the back. He seemed completely uninvested in whatever their relationship was, whether it was for good or ill. Oh, it was very mechanical and very dry, and then they try to get some... They try to milk it towards the end. I guess I won't get too into that because we're going to cover it in a narrative way. But uh, yeah, I just didn't really buy it or care about it, I guess. It was just kind of like a, a bullet point that didn't really go anywhere until they needed it to. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you also mentioned kind of labored things with the plot. 
there was also uh, Keith Richards uh, reprises his cameo from uh, the third film. I think he has more dialogue in this, where he, he's like Basil Exposition from Austin Powers, where he, he spells out... This movie has this very labored kind of quest structure where you need the five magic uh, MacGuffins to uh, get the Fountain of Youth to work. Unless we forget, there is a prophecy. Uh, yes. You've got an older mother... You know, you've got an older, you know, um, uh, you know, son or mother, daughter, son, you know, team of uh, offspring and parent going on a thing and there's a, you know, um, not holy grail, but I mean, isn't this a little derivative in Indiana Jones, perhaps? Or yeah, the last crusade, sure, the the chalice. Uh, I, I'm kind of like, come on, guys. like <laughs> We could do better than this. Well, talking, talking about the chalice, and this is a, a big sort of structural thing for me. Um, so we saw at the end of the previous uh, film that Jack Sparrow is going to find the Fountain of Youth because he finds clues to its location on his magic map. So this movie takes place maybe a year or two later where apparently he found it but didn't get eternal youth. And But, but also getting eternal youth, you can't just drink from the fountain. You have to do this ritual involving two silver chalices and a mermaid's tear. How does anyone figure that out? Right. I didn't feel like there was much dialogue in that direction because they they capture the mermaid and the mermaid thing kind of felt like it didn't feel shoehorned in but it just I felt like it kind of came out of nowhere well then you have the romance right between that one mermaid and and their religious dude Swift I I just looked his name up Sam uh, Clayflin yeah yep this guy's a fucking drip. I mean, like, <laughs> seriously, though, like, you know, I know they wanted to have a little love story with the absence of Keira Knightley and Orlando Bloom, and I gotta say, they were fun to watch, and Orlando Bloom was good because he had that, like, mixture of Errol Flynn and, like, Carrie Ellis from uh, Princess Bride. Sure, yeah, right. He had, like, a little dude who was kind of badass, kind of suave, kind of sexy, and, of course, Keira Knightley's incredibly easy to watch and you know she's the badass too like that was a very um i was very easy you know that was an easy pill to swallow that was a very good dynamic and it was a good juxtaposition the whole pirate thing these guys just sucked for lack of better terms they were just this guy was boring she was boring and i didn't give a flying shit about what happened like and it's a shame because he he could have been such an interesting character because i i like the idea of a, of a guy who's trying to be a devout man of God, surrounded by all sorts of creepy black magic and monsters and things like that, who's trying to be a moral center while surrounded by pirates, and it doesn't get the attention it deserves. He comes off like just a, like a random extra who got, you know, and he just is like, hey, I'm the good guy now. Like, okay, I guess so. I'm sure you like the mermaid chick, you know. We, we need to talk about the mermaid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I just couldn't think. Uh, I just kept on thinking of. I said this on Twitter yesterday, but I kept on thinking of Austin Powers the whole time, because <laughs> it, it it looks like the mermaids are are topless, but then in certain scenes you see and they're not that they have scales covering their ghibli bits. So um, sometimes. Yeah, sometimes and sometimes no. It's inconsistent. So they can't make it too sexy because it's a Disney movie based off a theme park ride. But it, it, it's, they just, they just half-ass it. Like, that you have mermaids are really more like the Greek sirens and kind of vampiric. 
okay, that's fine. But the attacks and everything is so bloodless and chaotic. Like, you you have no idea what's going on. Um, well, I guess also mermaids are like Spider-Man now. I guess. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, they, they have their prehensile so, hair, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> that was just... The thing with the, with uh, so Serena the mermaid, I think Astrid uh, Berger Frisbee, uh, who who plays Serena the main mermaid, I think I think she does a decent job with what she's given. She unfortunately doesn't have much uh, to work with, uh, but something so something that really jumped out at me. So uh, Matt, you mentioned how sometimes they have scales that cover up naughty bits, sometimes they don't. Um, like right off the bat, like you can just give them long hair that covers everything up. It's not Thank hard you. to do. Yes, and and they do that a little bit, but not as much as you would think. I, I um. Or like at least a seashell bikini. You're Disney. You know how that works. <laughs> right. Mermaids they have conveniently long hair that covers up their hooters or clamshell bras. Like, come on. Like the thing, the thing that, that drives me crazy is that an idea. So they put her in this like aquarium they carry with them through the the Florida the wetlands. Yeah. yeah. It introduces an idea which I would love to see. I would have loved to see the play around with more that the mermaids don't actually breathe water. They they breathe air. So because the aquarium sealed, she's suffocating. But then later they drop the aquarium and it breaks and like you know and you think oh gosh well. Presumably, she still needs to keep wet. I wonder what's going to happen. Yeah. And she just grows legs, and she's fine. Yeah, there's no real, like, mistakes. Well, because, so you know, you notice, so, like, after that part where they break the tank, she pretty much has legs, and I think there's only one, uh, one shot of her after that where you see her with her tail, with the CGI. Yeah. That almost feels like they were trying to save money. Like, we can't keep showing this tail. We can't keep doing this effect. <laughs> Give her, give her yeah. legs for a few scenes. Right, right. But that was the other thing, too. I'm like, I'm like, so wait, they got a mermaid. What, what was the reason in capturing her again? Are they trying to like, figure out what makes mermaids tick? Are they ransoming her? And then the whole thing, you know, it's like, you know, the, they, they fall and break. And then I was like, is this going to be a splash thing, you know, where she's actually like, oh, beautiful woman, and someone falls in love. <laughs> of course that's what happens. And then, you know, it just seems like a, like a, it's a really contrived moment where it's just like, oh shit, like we knocked her over. And then, you know, she turns into a human or what have you, or the closest to it. I mean, it, that just seemed lazy. And again, this like whole section of the film becomes really boring. And Ian McShane, like, again, this guy can read lines like no other. Like, yeah. He has, a, he has this brilliant line where he goes, if I don't kill somebody, these people are going to forget who I am. Like, <laughs> love that like you can give this guy anything and he can turn into gold like ian mcshane is such a solid actor and he doesn't do a lot of good stuff here he just is kind of like there he's not given really good material i mean he can uh, i think he's like much better in uh well deadwood as we mentioned and he's very good as as mr wednesday in american gods the tv series yeah. Um, but, you know, when used properly, Ian McShane can flare his nostrils and act circles around everyone else in the scene. But... Oh, yeah. He could do the pretzels are making me thirsty line and make my skin <laughs> 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 Yeah. Like, uh... In this, he's probably got, like, a few standout moments. And I'm like, if Ian McShane doesn't save your movie, then you kind of drop the ball. Well, and then what the hell is it with the scene going on forever where they're trying to s decide who's going after the chalice. 
Like, that should have been a very quick scene, and it goes on forever with Johnny Depp and Penelope Cruz bitching at each other. Right. It's, like, so just boring. <laughs> well, beyond that, it, like, brings up, like, what, what the limits of Blackbeard's power are. Because the whole reason they're having this conversation is there's a chasm they need to cross, and the bridge, the ropes for the rope bridge have been cut. And I was kind of, well, is there a reason why why Blackbeard can't just animate the ropes and fix the bridge? Does it only work on a on at sea? They've already shown on the animating ropes before. Yeah, yeah. he's, he's comfortable <laughs> with things, you know, like... The other thing, they, they make such a meal out of that that the actual getting of the chalice is such a nothing scene where it's Jack and Barbosa on uh, on Ponce de Leon's ship, which is somehow teetering on top of a mountain. The cliff, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's another plot point that you just I just kind of forgot about. It's like, oh, the Ponce de Leon thing. And, it, and it's, it's a yeah. great visual, and it is kind of in keeping with the series, but it's so over the top that if I think for even a second of how it could have gotten there, I am suddenly imagining a much more exciting movie. Yeah, exactly, and that's the thing is that like I think Rob Marshall has visual chops and knows how to like frame and set up a scene, but in like a more tangential context, like Chicago, you got chicks with Tommy guns and you know cool musical numbers, whereas the expanse of the series doesn't really fit with his directing style. Because I feel like Rinsky had such more ambitious visual chops where he can really take advantage of fantasy. And the unknown, whereas this felt mm. so limited. Like, I, there was just a lot of, like, the only time the camera really moved in creative ways was in these really, like, kind of lazy, um, like, CG shots of, like, the mermaid swirling underneath the boat, or, you know, some other, you know, scenes where they were on the island. And, like, Gore, the Gore Verbinski flicks, like, even the beginning of two, where he's on the spit and he, you know, he wiggles himself off the spit and comes off a mountain there isn't that like sense of imagination to the action the action is kind of dry in this in my opinion so i do want to talk about the scene that won me back uh in this film so like they're just at the 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 movie's kind of starting to get too long and there's all sorts of supernatural cgi nonsense in this cave, which turns out to be the entrance to the Fountain of Youth, and everybody gets sucked up into a vortex, and there's this grotto, which has the Guardian of Forever for Star Trek in it, and that's the Fountain of Youth, and throughout, so we forgot to mention that there's a, the opening scene of this movie are Spanish fish, fishermen catching a man in their net who claims to be from Ponce de Leon's crew, who is dropped in front of the, the leader of the Spanish Armada. And there's this theme throughout the film that everyone is racing, the British and the Spanish and Blackbeard, they're all in a race to get uh, to get the fountain. And the Spanish haven't been uh, since the challenges got liberated. And just right when you think a big fight's gonna happen between the British and Blackbeard and his they're there to destroy it because, as they say, it can only be found in the kingdom of God. I think it's strange. Hey! 
So yeah, Alex, can you hear us? You're breaking up a little bit. Uh, yeah, I just, I just heard some commotion. So okay. It was the attack of the giggling pirates. Um, something like that on the other end of the store. Okay. Adorable, adorable invasion ever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but I love that turn. I mean, that 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 won me over. Yeah, that was exciting. I will say there was like. You know, I know I've kind of been, like, trashing this movie a bit. There are some good moments. I'm not going to take that away from it. I wanted, I walked into it, I said, this is going to be fun. I'm going to give it... I'm going to give it... No! No! I think like nothing nothing quite lives up to the turn the, the turn of the, the Spanish showing up. Like even even the end where Jack manages to get just enough of the water to try to save uh, Angelica. And because that's the other thing that's really complicated on the fountain of the works is that you, your life gets extended, but that life has to be taken from someone else, which is why there's two chalices. And yeah, it seems like something that'd be like in like a like a sinister machine, like a marble polish or something. Like that. Uh, <laughs> you get to turn the light, you get to take it. <laughs> <laughs> it and and so they do a whole thing where where Angelica drinks, thinking she's giving her life uh, to Blackbeard. So they've both been poisoned. But in fact, Jack, as we knew he would, switched oh, yeah. chalices, um, saving Penelope and killing Blackbeard. So on the one hand, is exactly what, what Jack would do. On the other hand, I hate that Angelica's initiative has been taken from her. Yeah. It, it's a weird kind of it, it's a It's a betrayal that I'm not exactly comfortable with, even though I would much rather see Angelica live than Blackbeard. Yeah. Oh, that's that's. I didn't think about that actively, but you're right. It's totally, uh, totally Indiana Jones, and it um. It, something just feels, I can't pin down what it was, but it just, it just feels so stretched out. And this is, this is a movie with a lot of things going on. And yet, it feels like it's five hours to me. It feels like it's twice the length that it is. And I feel like that's because, like, there's no, there's a lack of narrative focus. Where, like, mm -hmm. it's like, we're going to go for the Holy Grail. And fight yep. these long and then, you know, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's, we're going to find the Ark of the Covenant. Whereas fight Nazis uh, along the way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Take the damn Nazis. Um, and then in this, it's like, all right, um, we're going to, you know, just kind of play it as we go, because that's what Jack Sparrow does. And then we've got Blackbeard, and then we've got this, and then we got the daughter, and Jeffrey Rush is hanging around, and then there's something about a mermaid, and then there's some other stuff. Uh, yeah, mermaid tears, uh, fountain of youth, bleh. 
you know, and it's by the end, like, you're not really pulling any of these narrative uh, threads because you don't really care. You know, like, they don't do a very good job on, uh, on selling it to you because it's just kind of just jumbled, I guess. Right. It It's not satisfying. The new characters don't have the spark as some of the ones from the uh, original. And um, considering how much weight, especially in At World's End, it gives to the uh, Orlando Bloom Cure Nightly stuff, that that stuff doesn't even get a near a mention at all in this, except maybe you see you see the map from the third film briefly in the beginning. Yeah, um, and it gets burned, I think, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, you it, spent all this time memorizing these crazy circles or something like that. So it, it just seems like a, a real disservice to... Yeah, I think a better way to circumvent that would be, like, this might sound cheap, but, like, make it a prequel? Or a spin-off? Or a... That way you don't have to explain the absence of, like, major characters that made the movie good. Right. I mean, you... you a whole other hemisphere, you know, go go to the South China Sea or something like that, or, like, Australia. Right, right. Or, like, the thing I was saying earlier, like, I feel like there's a lot of meat there with the relationship between Penelope Cruz and um, Ian McShane and Blackbeard ah. and Jack Sparrow. That would have been, like, a fun narrative to see, like their courtship and how that came about, you know, like, how does a pirate lord deal with a daughter dating some other young up and start pirate, you know what I mean? Like, that's funny. That would be great. Like, there's, like, a whole movie right there, I think, you know, like, dating the daughter of a pirate Like, that's crazy. Great. Um... Cool, yeah. I, I would give uh, this film, Pirates of the Caribbean, on Stranger Tides, I would give this a sequel no. I don't, I don't think it's terrible, but it just seems a bit lazy. And I am shocked that, uh, as of this recording in 2019, it is still the most expensive film ever made. Unadjusted for inflation. That's crazy. Yep. Yeah, I'm... I'm going to give it a sequel no, but it's it's a mild sequel no, only because I did overall enjoy this movie. I love the beginning, I love the end. If I watch it again, I will probably skip through a lot of the middle, but I feel I will be watching this again. Um, my, so my sequel no is a quit while you're ahead sequel no. This is a perfectly fine way to end the series. <laughs> Although, speaking of ending, did any of you catch the uh, post credit sequence? No. I'm gonna say I didn't. No, I didn't. So, so Angelica, Jack abandons Angelica on an island with a, a musket with one shot. You know, uh -huh. just like he was at one point left, and you know she, and, and that's where she's left. So throughout the film, there's a thing where where Blackbeard makes a voodoo doll of Jack Sparrow, which barely gets used. The post-credit sequence is Angelica's just on the shore of the island, and the voodoo doll floats up, and she picks it up and gets this sinister look on her face. That, for tokens, a very interesting sequel, but I'm pretty sure we're never going to get it. Uh, but uh, well, Alex, so how would you rate this? Sequel yes or sequel no? Um, you know, maybe it's the periphery of watching the first three films so close so, with such close proximity to this movie. I'm going to have to go with sequel no, because, like, 
you know, I just was so overwhelmed by like the sense of adventure and wonder and like ambition in these first three movies. And then this one just kind of felt like a like a sail fart kind of like I just was when you have swashbuckling pirates and adventure and uh, you know magic for me to feel bored for that like that's that's I don't want to sound pompous but I feel like that's almost inexcusable <laughs> you know what I mean like you have so much going in your corner and you have so much you have so many resources at your at, at your fingertips and you just kind of let it slip through your hands and you just got a weird mishmash of awkward well, I mean, a movie can be many things, but one thing a movie should never be is boring. It's boring, exactly. Thank you. That's what I. That's one of my mantras. All right, and that was uh, so we just covered Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. Now we're gonna move on to pitch a sequel. Um, I had something in mind. I'm thinking, you know, after all all this daring do and how expensive this movie was, they'd want to do something a bit more low stakes. I would make it a, um, I would go the Muppet Babies route and be about a baby Jack Sparrow. <laughs> and it, it, the, and the opening uh, scene is uh, Jack Sparrow's mother, as it turns out, is a, is a French whore. And <laughs> she leaves Jack Sparrow, the baby, alone in her crib to uh, attend to one of her... Um, uh, gentleman callers. Gentleman callers, thank you. And as she walks away, she leaves her little uh, glass of rum, which baby Jack Sparrow picks up and starts drinking delightfully and cooing. And and that's how we get into the opening credit sequence with a, a version of um, Jack Sparrow's He's a Pirate character theme played on xylophones. Pirate babies! Yeah, that's what it is. It is pirate babies. And so we have like a, a baby... Uh, Johnny Depp and a baby Jeffrey Rush, uh, you, you know, try to find like the golden diaper or something, and it, it will use horrific CG to put the faces of the real uh, Johnny Depp and Jeffrey Rush actors on top of the baby's body. Um, is, is it going to look something like that Jack Black baby from the House with the Clock in Its Walls? I haven't seen that movie. I'm, I, what I'm thinking is it'll look more like. Uh, what we see in um, some of the scenes in the Jerry Lewis Nutty Professor, in which in long shots it's like real babies, but in close-ups it's the actors with some clumsy costuming. Uh, and don't you mean the Eddie Murphy one? No, I mean the Jerry Lewis one. There's a scene in the Jerry Lewis movie where um, they go and uh, he talks about when when some scene where the professor was a kid showing that he was a nerd and his parents parents were nerds. And in the long uh, shots, it's a child, but in the close up, it's Jerry Lewis with a, a bib on or whatever. Um, so, and it would be called uh, Pirates of the Caribbean Code Brown. <laughs> Good God. And it, it would it would be it would the, the poster would be um, a diaper, but it has the the skull and crossbones of the Pirates of the Caribbean cross uh, logo on it. <laughs> oh, that's great! And one of the trailers is going to have the Captain Jack theme done in farts. <laughs> well, now we know it's going to get made. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You might get a you know option from Disney for that. I, I, I wouldn't be against it. Uh, Alex. 
pitch this evening. What's your pitch? All right, so here's what we got. So after all the events that precipitated here in the the fourth entry in the pirate series, um, Jack Sparrow is then captured and then held in captivity by the uh, East India Trading Company. And in that time, for all of the, you know, they're really just going to throw the book at him for all of the, you know, crazy misdeeds that he's done. And in exchange for all of his, you know, crimes and, you know, matters of piracy, instead of sending him to the gallows, he has to go undercover to out other dastardly pirates that might pose as a threat to the East India Trading Company. And what he finds is that there's an actual much more dangerous pirate syndicate based in Shanghai. And what happens is that this Chinese pirate syndicate is like the most badass crazy thing ever. So what happens is that he gets into their ranks like Departed style and finds out that the leader is none other than someone played by Jackie Chan or Jet Li. In order to beat him, he has to be a master of drunken boxing. So, Jack Sparrow has to become a member of Kung Fu Drunken Boxing to defeat the opposite Chinese pirate Master King. So, what you have is basically a marriage of Drunken Master meets Pirates of the Caribbean with all sorts of sorcery-inspired pirate wackiness. And it's called Pirates of the Caribbean, The Great Wall. Hmm... Neat. And it's directed Thrasher? by Troy Hark. No, directed by who? Troy Hark. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. It's funny you mentioned um, uh, going to Asia because that's kind of what I wanted to do too. Um, so oh. one of the most, and uh, I'll run off the bat. I do want to. I do want to apologize uh, to the British Crown. Um, the King George we saw in this movie was King George the Second. King George the Third was the Mad King George uh, sure. that we had the revolution with. Uh, but anyway, or over, uh, depending on how you want to look at it. But anyway, so mine is one of the most re- fascinating uh, real-world uh, figures in the history of, of naval navigation was a figure uh, by the name of Zhang He. And he was uh-huh. a court eunuch, and he was the official court... Uh, cartographer and navigator for the Emperor of China in, I think, the late 13, early 1400s. And the short of it is he commissioned the construction of these giant boats. They were along the same styles as junks, but they were some of the biggest boats ever built up until we started making steel ocean liners. And he sent them around the world and used them to establish diplomatic and economic ties with 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 places all over the world, there are evidence that there were Zenghi posts in Africa, in Australia, and South America. That is how far he got. And the, the ships were known as the treasure ships because they were all loaded uh, with wealth that could be used to trade and would all bring interesting things back to China from these foreign ports. Huh. But sadly, uh, there was a changeover in the government and they decided that traveling the world with giant boats was decadent. The fleet was recalled and burned. Uh, and Zheng He ended up getting forced into early retirement and died of old age as a bookkeeper. But... Um, not all of his ships were accounted for. 
there was one treasure ship that didn't get recalled and burned, and that is the treasure ship uh, that Captain Jack is trying to get, because he wants all that sweet, sweet money. And uh, he's also competing with a bunch of Asian pirates and with a bunch of British pirates, I'm sorry, British sailors from the British Navy who are trying to do all the usual British Empire stuff, and that means getting Chinese treasures, which they can then ransom back to China to force (laughs) open borders and do all the things that British empires do. But because there has to be a supernatural element uh when they find the last treasure ship there's a reason why it wasn't recalled it was supposed to take something as far away from china as possible and that was an evil chinese dragon imprisoned in a black jade dragon statue Mm. and so that's your the climax of your film is that uh the uh the chinese sailors jack's pirates and the british navy are going to be fighting over the treasure ship and the dragon gets released, and now there's a fourth <laughs> contender in that fight is this giant dragon, and it's going to be amazing. Oh, see, that sounds great. See, Thrasher, I'm so glad you said that, because, like, you know, I've always been a very, very overt, like, fan of Hong Kong cinema, and um, I don't know why there isn't more cross-realization in these two film industries of Hollywood and Hong Kong movies. And... Um, also, too, with, like, the, the fascination with, like, the East India Trading Company and stuff and colonialism, and then the Chinese, you know, their relationship with China and, like, the, you know, Hong Kong being, a, the you know, an English colony, a British colony for hundreds of years, like, I don't know why that couldn't be more of a facet in more films that breach the, you know, international gulf between Hollywood and Hong Kong and Britain. The other one that comes to mind is Jackie Chan's Project A uh, duology. Yeah, that's like as close as we Mm. get, which are damn fine. I love those movies. I actually still have them on VHS. I bought them when I was so young. (laughs) Um, I love that bike sequence in the first one. Oh, yeah, no, it's freaking flawless. I love those movies. We should do those sometime. Yeah, no, that's a good idea. Put that feather in my cap. Um, Yeah, so from that, we'll move on to. uh, what you're watching, and I have not been watching uh, anything I want to talk about, but I've been reading something, uh, actually listening to an audiobook that's quite good. It is by uh, Brian J. Jones, and this is just called uh, Jim Henson, The Biography. Uh, It's a whopping 608 pages, and if if you like production history biographies, it goes into excruciating detail, which I, I enjoy that stuff when I'm in the mood, and this is really well done and what's really amazing about the um the audiobook which i don't recall uh i don't have in front of me who uh, reads the audiobook but the person who, do, who uh, does the reading for the audiobook is extraordinary because he's able to do very good imitations of like all the muppets and stuff hmm. See, so when it's describing a scene it, it's pretty convincing um and I, i'd like to share a brief anecdote from from the book if i may uh, Please do. Yeah, so Jim, are you a fan of Jim Henson, Alex? Oh yeah, definitely. Who isn't? Okay, sure. I I assume. But <laughs> assume. So with uh, it, it talks about Jim Henson liked to play practical jokes more as he became an older man, and he had a um, oh like in, the Muppet Show was like in England, right? But later on, he had a Muppet. He had sort of two different Muppet Company go- going on. He had one, I think, the Creature Shop, which was in the UK, 
and he had the um, the Sesame Street production in New York, um, which that was called something else. So anyway, he's in the UK, and he's he's trying to do a lot of different television projects to get off the ground. But he's playing a joke on his producer, so he invites this um, this Swedish director to come in and pitch a project to where uh, where the the Muppet uh, team can do Muppets for. And he says this is called Animal Farm, and they say okay. And he says and uh, and this Animal Farm, uh, it, it's about this girl. Who is uh, she is nubile? She is coming of age, and pretty soon they realize, well, this isn't the, the George Orwell book Animal Farm. This is a, a pornographic picture. This this man is describing a great. <laughs> and, and the whole time Jim Jim Henson is like, hmm, that's very interesting. Hmm. And, and meanwhile, Jim Henson's British producer is going like, absolutely not. We will not sink such terrible things here. And Jim Henson lets this pitch go on for a solid thirty minutes before he breaks up laughing and admits it's just all a joke. But. This, this, the, the guy who was pretending to be the Swedish director is saying things like, no, Bork, Bork, uh, Bork. Yeah, Bork, Bork is saying like, uh, now we want to do this movie with, uh, I don't know, I can't do an accent like that, but he's saying like, now in this movie, the reason we want to do it with Muppets and real, and not real animals is because there's many sex scenes between this nubile girl and the animals. <laughs> and we must have, uh, I think with your Muppets, we can have the flexibility and the creative freedom needed as opposed to using natural animals. The thing is, that being said, had Jim Henson not passed away when he did, Mm. I feel like it's inevitable that at some point he would have done some sort of puppet project with with sexual, overtly sexual or erotic elements. Well, when, um, I mean, this came out after Jim Henson was dead, but one of Jim Henson's children saw uh, Peter Jackson's Meet the Feebles and said, oh my God, my father, Jim Henson, would have loved this. So oh, yeah, I, th- I think you might be onto something. But um, I highly recommend Jim Henson, the biography. It's 600 pages. It's pretty long. Um, but I'm really enjoying the audiobook version. Um, Alex, what's something you've been enjoying? Um, let's see. So lately, um, well, the holiday season is coming past, so I got a plethora of really cool... DVDs and Blu-rays, some of them being um, Abel Ferreira's The Addiction. Um, Abel Ferreira, man, this guy is something else, and like, it's funny because he's known for Bad Lieutenant, which is kind of like one of his mo- like most well-known movies. That's actually the one I like the least. Um, the Addiction is um, Lily Taylor's uh, a um, NYU grad student, and she's, uh, you know, bitten on the neck, and then it becomes this kind of like allegory for like drug addiction and um i guess like um you know the hiv scare and things like that it's a fascinating mm. um catholic allegory for like addiction and all these other things and like cultural mores too fascinating flick check it out it's great air uh not Aero media but no actually i think it is Aero media put out a blu-ray uh this year it was, it was wonderful but um i do want to say last night i watched vice and oh, yeah. um no oh, yeah no i didn't care for it it was just okay. uh it was christian bale like you know like wheezing and moaning his way through this like very awkward um thick make thickly made up uh portrayal of dick cheney and um adam mckay's like visual and aesthetic flourishes are like just very awkward like it's basically like trying to sell you on the fact that these guys made terrible decisions that horribly affected our country for the past, present, and future. 
And it's like almost like saying it's like, dude, we know that Vietnam, Afghanistan, we were there, Iraq, Iran, and Enron, and like twenty other things were pretty awful. Um, you don't really need to highlight that, and um, but you know they try to like pencil in these little moments of humanism like that. He had affection for his daughter who was gay, and that that humanized the character a little bit. But I feel like movies like this kind of like descend into this like glorified form of like historical cosplay where they yeah yeah Yeah. like you know they've got a guy who plays henry kissinger he looks like henry kissinger he looks like he sounds like henry kissinger and then sam rackwall's you know playing george you know w bush and he looks like bush and he sounds like bush and like with these other minor characters like you have other guys that play colin powell and condoleezza rice and I feel like these are like kind of like actors who have like like that like come up to like somebody that that would like come up to you after like their role and be like, yeah, I also do birthdays and bar mitzvahs. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, it's just uh, it's just a very like awkward form of performance where like it just feels uh, reductive and kind of boring. So. Vice just kind of has that same, like, MTV aesthetic of, like, you know, we're going to give you all these flashy visuals and, um, you know, culturally significant jokes with a lot of narration and um, not really bring up anything of substance to the material. Um, so, yeah, wasn't too crazy about that, but a simple favor was great. Hmm. Um, does it ever have a titular line? Does Dick Cheney ever sigh and say, you know, politics were my vice? <laughs> no, there is some. There is a really winks. bad line in it, though, where um, where George Bush is asking him to be his vice president. He goes, he goes, come on, Dick, you love politics. <laughs> I'm like, come the fuck on, like. That would be like the Charlie Chaplin movie and be like, come on, Chuck, you love comedy. Like, <laughs> that's so stupid. It's the 60s and things are changing. Yeah, man, it's crazy. Like, it, it was just, there was just so many bottom dollar references in there that, like, they even had this, like, they even had the nerve to, like, recreate this, like, Cambodian family. Like, they're out in their little hut and they're, like, making food and the kids are running around and they're having a beautiful time. And then, like, Napalm, like, blows their village away. It's like, we know Vietnam sucked. Like, we know a lot of innocent people (laughs) died. Like, I saw Hearts and Minds. I read a book or two. I have a fucking brain in my head. I know that Vietnam was awful. So you don't need to, like, have this little Lifetime movie display recreation of, like, you know, a fucking poor fucking, you know, Da Nang family getting massacred. Like, I get it. You know, that's just, it's such a shorthanded fucking movie. I'm getting kind of riled up thinking about it, honestly. So, yeah, Vice, I'm not a fan. <laughs> what do you say, in retrospect, you enjoyed Oliver Stone's movie W more? Um, at least it had a little restraint to it. <laughs> okay. I'm not to say I was uh, over the moon about it, but Josh Brolin was good. Yeah, uh, Thrasher, what's uh, something you've been watching? So, uh... I ended up watching uh, uh, Bird Box, which we don't oh, get to yeah. see the metrics, but is supposedly one of the highest streamed films of the year. 
Nielsen does uh, confirm that with their ratings, too. Um, oh, oh, okay. But it's uh, directed by Suzanne Baer. Uh, it's uh, starring Sandra Bullock, uh, Travante Rhodes, John Malkovic, and B.D. Wong, who were both two amazing gets I was not expecting to see in, in this movie. I didn't know wow. anything about it other than Sandra Bullock wears a blindfold at some point uh, when I saw it. Uh, it's... I and. Oh, and it's also uh, based on a novel by the same name by Josh uh, Mailerman. This was an this was an interesting movie. I I, I really enjoyed seeing it. it. It is not flawless, but this this really falls in the area of pretty good. Okay, it as far as movies go, among critics and stuff. So. Yeah, I think I think what it is is that is that the handful of missteps the movie has are just glaring enough that you can't help thinking about them after the movie's over. But overall, I I enjoyed watching it. The film did a really good job of building of building a lot of tension and releasing it in interesting ways. Uh, and I really, really, really have to applaud this movie. So, like for and for anyone who doesn't know, uh, is that there's something there's something and if people look at it they go crazy and try to kill themselves and that's what that's what gets things going in this movie and at no point do they ever try to establish what exactly is going on and and how it works that sounds pretty cool yeah like what whatever is doing it is left inexplicable you know all we know is that whatever it is has a physical presence but that's it like we don't know if it's a demon, an alien, an extra-dimensional being, a psychic cloud of some kind, right. um, and and so and they're and they're and they're consist mostly consistent in the rules. That was the the only two things about about the way the I guess for lack of a better term the wandering madness worked. Um, one I guess I won't get into until Matt maybe you've had a chance to see it because it does go into spoiler territory, but. The thing that really bothered me is that the, the way it works is you look at whatever this thing is, and in a matter of moments, you have gone irredeemably mad and try to take your life. And it's a purely visual thing. But at the movie's climax, all of a sudden, the thing seems to get a whole bunch of new properties and powers. Huh. And it's it's kind of uns- – and I know they're doing it to build tension – but because they are now violating the rules, the movie has done such a good job enforcing that I, I felt it was a real letdown. Huh. Now, like, the negative criticism I heard about that was that a lot of people felt like it was, like, a uh, cheap shot revision of A Quiet Place, whereas that you can't hear stuff, so for this one you can't see stuff. Is that valid, or is that just hogwash? It's not It's not too... It's, it, I would say it's not valid for two reasons. One... Quiet space deals a lot more with sort of like world building of how you how you would try to live and build a sustainable life under that kind of crisis. Right. But with Bird Box, it's all very moment to moment. Everybody is improvising and everybody's kind of on the edge and no one's really in a position to try to figure out a way that you can live a sustained life uh, under these circumstances. And the other thing is it is based on a novel. Uh, it was based on a novel that came out uh, before the script for A Quiet Place was was written oh yeah there you go so that, mm, that criticism right. kind of gets flushed although that being said it's only a matter of time before somebody does a parody where like if you smell something uh something <laughs> bad happens and everybody's trying to hold their nose well you know if they make more scary movies then they got it covered <laughs> yeah but then they just make it farts right yeah exactly 
<laughs> or you, you you could do a version of it where uh, the whole gimmick is because uh, you can't see it. If you see it, you go crazy. The whole movie is uh, the movie begins. You you sort of see some characters, and then a blindfold is tied around the movie camera. See, so <laughs> the whole movie is in darkness, and you just hear things. So, so it's, it's like, found footage, but they blindfold. <laughs> they put the lens cap on the camera. It's like Jigsaw uh, yeah. doing pin the tail on the donkey. You know, like you have a blindfold, but there's a game. You can only pin the tail on the right donkey. Or else you'll get kicked or touch a poisonous cactus. Yeah, you know, I haven't seen this movie, but I've seen the, the commercials for something called Escape Room. It's like a horror movie oh, yeah. that's PG-13. And to me, I, I saw the preview, I'm like, isn't that just Saw? Yeah. I saw Game Where, yeah, a bunch of strangers you know, in like a room. That. And... <laughs> Yeah, it sounds a little too um, close. Also, aren't like game rooms meant to be like kind of? Uh, I mean, um, escape rooms meant to be like kind of intense. Not really. I did one as well. I did one as like a corporate work event. Okay, yeah, I was... haven't done one yet. So yeah, I'm 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 out of the loop here. So I I, I would recommend it, especially if someone else is paying for it. Yeah, because um, <laughs> they they vary wildly in quality. Uh, the one I we um, I was talking to the guy that ran this one up in uh, Vancouver, Washington, out here in the West Coast, and he was saying he had the chance to go to one in like the Czech Republic, where they lock you in an ancient dungeon with a oh, bunch man. of strangers, and like oh. to me that would be much more interesting if you use like actual uh, locations, because some of these other ones like. In fact, the one I did was, was of all things, pirate-themed. But just the sets, like, look cheap. Yeah. And it doesn't quite sell the... And the thing this guy did, I can see why he did it, but you have, like, a two-hour... Well, maybe, like, a 90-minute time limit. And to solve all... If you solve all the puzzles and get out, you win or whatever. Huh. And But this guy had a thing where he could... Um, he had a webcam in there and a microphone so he could kind of, like, hear what people were doing. And if you could hmm. see you were getting close to solving a puzzle, he'd give you clues, which oh. took me right out of the scenario. Yeah, no, that sounds like kind of lame. I, I don't think yeah, a lot of places most... do it quite like that. This was like, uh, um, what do you call it? This was a escape room thing set up in the back of a gaming store, right? Oh. So it was... Yeah, I've heard stories yeah, where it's like, if you don't get it... I've done a few escape enough. rooms, and the, and the ones I've done, they will only give you a clue if you specifically ask for it, or they feel you're getting stuck. And everyone I've been in, they give you plenty of time to get stuck. Yeah. Right, so, um... Alright, well, before we... Alex, thanks for, for doing the show. Before we sign off here, let's, um... Have you talk about your YouTube series, the the trailer project? <laughs> oh yeah, so the trailer project for the longest time I have been watching. Um, there's a there's a great YouTube channel um, called Trailers from Hell, that's pretty much the brainchild of uh, director Joe Dante, and then he basically mm. has his director friends uh, John Landis, Mick Garris, um, Ty West, and then they pick trailers that they're liking. And they offer their commentaries over it, you know. And I, you know, fell in love with the station. So I basically figured I would just copy that model and do my own uh, version of it. Um, granted, I don't have famous directors in my roster to come over and do guest spots, but hey, I'm a pretty savvy guy. So um, basically, I've just uh, chosen a selection of um, 
films that I think are interesting and movies that I think that have uh, gotten the short shrift in the critical landscape of things. Um, let's face it, there's a lot of movies that come out. And, you know, you don't get to see all of them. So it's basically like, you know, genre films that may have slipped through the cracks. Um, for instance, I did um, this brilliant Australian Western starring Dennis Hopper, uh, Mad Dog Morgan. And um, this brilliant <clears throat> Japanese noir film, The Most Terrible Time of My Life, which was the start of a three-part trilogy called the Maikuhama Private Eye Trilogy. And, um, yeah, so it's just a way to shine a light on lesser seen movies and to show them a little love and um, hope that more people get to see them because that's what it's all about. Right. There's just so many things out there. It's really quite... Um, quite astounding so i think you're, you're doing a great thing and if, if you like uh trailers from hell they also do a podcast now called the movies that made me oh, oh that's yeah. so good have you heard that i haven't yet but i i look to because i i think they're great Thrasher i've listened to the like, first few episodes they're very good yeah um there was the most recent one to kick off the new year's with william friedkin oh sure hmm. who manages to shit on kubrick <laughs> And Hitchcock, and um, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. And he, he just to give you I a love chase, William Friedkin. He, I love what he I talks love. about. He talks about watching the excellent uh, behind-the-scenes documentary on the making of Kubrick's The Shining, which was shot by Kubrick's daughter, I believe. Yeah. Um, it, it's on some of the DVD versions, I think. It's not especially great. I think it's off like a VHS master. Yeah. Not great visual quality, but good, but good material. And it talks about the scene where, uh, so on this podcast, William Friedkin is talking about the scene where Jack Nicholson is trying to hack his way with the axe through the door. And Stanley Kubrick is spending hours on his back looking at his viewfinder, you know, trying to say like, oh, I think this is a good angle. And William Friedkin's opinion is, you think laying on the on your back looking straight up at a door is a good angle? From what point of view is that supposed to be? <laughs> um, I don't I, agree with uh, that Japanese. necessarily, but Friedkin is quite contemporary in the best way possible. Oh yeah, definitely. And just as a quick addendum, I don't mean to make it all about me. Um, since my YouTube channel was so heavily inspired by Trailers from Hell, I did send a link of my intro video to Joe Dante via Facebook because he's one of oh. those nice guys who will, who who will friend anybody. And I was yeah. like, hey, you know, yeah, cool. um, I hope I'm not being annoying, but, you know, Chiller from Hell was a big source of inspiration for me. So, you know, I'd be really, really excited if you uh, if you, if you gave this a look-see. And he did, and he, and he sent me a message back and said, hey, looks great, thank you. So, like, what a minute. Oh, that's really cool. What a good guy, you know. So thank you, Joe Dante, for giving me a little boost there. That, that, that was cool. Yeah, I can't think of Joe Dante now without thinking of the sketch from um of a uh, key and peel where oh, yeah. it's the, the the it's set in the pitch meeting for gremlins 2 oh, oh god yeah. and everybody gets to make their own gremlin yep <laughs> and, and joe i believe uh, on twitter or something joe dante's response was that's pretty much how it happened <laughs> so <laughs> oh well um so, uh, Alex, if people want to check out your stuff on YouTube, what's your YouTube channel? Uh, it's called the uh, the Trailer Project. The Trailer Project, and then is there any other uh, link you want to plug? Oh yeah, um, 
you know, check out the uh, Battleship Pretension um, Criterion Predictions. It's a weekly column I do. We're based on distribution patterns and film releases. Uh, films that might be inaugurated into the Criterion Collection. So there's that. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, Crab Nebula1914. So yeah, all sorts of fun stuff down this avenue. Do, do you think that Mr. Bean takes a holiday and might make it to the Criterion Collection one day? Fingers crossed, brother. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, I know. I could see Mr. Bean getting some highfalutin, like revisiting in some collection of some sort. Yeah, I feel like it'd be like an eclipse set, you know. Like the the, sure. the the prime selections of Mr. Bean. Uh, as long as it's not the animated series, which is pretty horrendous. <laughs> yeah, that I yeah. <laughs> Mr. Bean did all his own groans for the Warren Atkinson did all his the voiceover work, which is just a you know thirty seconds of mumbling. Yeah. But, um, yeah. <laughs> ooh, ooh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Thrasher, um, do you have any writing you'd like to plug? Oh, gosh. Well, let me see. I'm trying to think of uh, everything I have coming out in the near future is still under uh, NDA. But that being said, uh, check out this is this is available, should be available in your friendly local game store. If it's not, go to them and uh, order it. See if they can order it or buy it online. It's available in both hardcover and PDF. Uh, but that is Wrath and Glory, which is the new Warhammer 40,000 tabletop RPG. Uh, I had a hand in writing that, so it's some of my most recent work, and it's probably probably the biggest tabletop game that I've worked on so far wink so can you tell like what parts of that that you've written or is it just sort of different oh no absolutely uh, I, I wrote okay. uh, primarily the equipment section and starships okay um, great uh, I'm working on stuff I can't really talk about unfortunately but um, so I'll just leave it at that that's a big letdown, but I do, you know, if you uh, go to my website, which I should update more uh, at matbt.wordpress.com, I have a lot of my articles and stuff on there, including one I did a few years ago that was pretty well received about how to, um, you know, how to have like your own like video game streaming show, and I talked to people like uh, Jeremy Parrish. And pushing up roses and, and some some of those pers YouTube personalities. So that was pretty interesting. Um, doing an article and doing a research on something that I haven't really done myself so much. So, and it was done for a pretty base, a pretty um, mainstream audience too. So I, I think it came together okay. And it, 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 there's a little lesson in here for you uh, writers doing articles. Like you might sell a pitch for something. And um, don't send your first draft, because that's the mistake I made for this article. And the first draft was like half an outline, half an article. It was complete shit, and the editor said as much. And I was like, uh, oh, wait, here's, let me find the real copy of it. Um, so I, I would just, you know, you, your writing can always use a quick polish before you send it off. Because as perfect as you may think your writing is, take a day off, eat a sandwich, and come back to it. And you'll think, who wrote this piece of shit? And you can always improve it. The best thing you can do is read it out loud to yourself. Yeah, no, I, I love that you said that. That's um, the best thing fact, you can do. Like, I had an editor beat that into my head. Best best advice I ever got. 
Yeah, in, in fact, uh, one of my favorite authors did that for all of his novels, and each of his novels were like a thousand pages. I'm talking about um, James uh, Mishner, who did okay, yeah. these massive novels in the 70s, like Centennial, yep. and you know, these are real dwarfs. Hawaii, I think, might be one of his more famous ones. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that he read these a thousand page books aloud at two different points in his editing process. Just to make sure it sounded right. Yeah, because that, that's, that, no, that's a real good tip. That's the minutiae and the flow of everything, you know? Like, it's just... Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's... I, I've caught so many little amateur mistakes in my articles and columns mm-hmm. doing that, so... if I also mistake, like for editing, printing out a hard copy and using a pen and start marking it up that way, because yeah. sometimes if you stare at a computer screen for too long, you get in kind of a vegetative state. Yeah, it's like a highway hypnosis thing, but with letters, <laughs> you know? They're just there right. staring you in the face, you know. But um, I, I did want to ask you, Matt, are you still doing the um, the uh, movie video games YouTube series? No, you know, I need to... I have so many half-baked things on YouTube. Uh, thanks for bringing that up, though. Yeah, I've done a few of them. You know, for a while I was playing at movie video games. I looked at, like, the Terminator video games and yeah, stuff. And like then Rambo I, I and stuff. sort of rebranded it as something called Stallone in the Dark. Oh, okay. Uh, looking at a few Stallone <laughs> video games. So every once in a while I'll do something on there, but I just really have to, um, especially this year, I need to buckle down and really focus on these longer-form writing projects. Cool. Um, but I, I do like the YouTube stuff. I wouldn't mind doing... I, I did try uh, every once in a while a live stream on Twitch, and I decided to do it with the old Nintendo game Castlevania. Oh, where nice. you're fighting Dracula, and I did it in character as Christopher Lee. Um, nice. But... I had a, a whopping audience of three people, and no one commented that I was talking like Christopher Lee the whole time. <laughs> so, but I would pepper it with like real tidbits from his life, like uh, I'm fighting a mummy. I played him in one of my Hammer horror films. So. Speaking of Hammer, if we ever, uh, yes. if that ever happens, please, I would, I, I would love for that to happen. Yeah, I would. Love yeah, to no, definitely. We we've, we've talked about Hammer and. Uh, yeah, we, we, who else? We've um, another one of our frequent guests, uh, Eric McEver, uh, who was on our episode for Pirates One. Uh, he's wanting us to do the um, Road Two movies with Bob Hope. Okay, yeah. Oh, and Bing Crosby. And Bing Crosby, um, which there were several of those done for different studios, which is kind of weird. Right. But um, like you have like Star Wars fanboys, like I am a Hammer fan boy not to be gender specific or anything but yeah <laughs> i i believe on um amazon prime they have a recent hammer horror films uh, documentary oh yeah um just out. look up hammer and i forget what it's called it's some generic name but i think it's from within the past few years oh cool and uh, what one last thing and i'm sorry for running late but um I just, with hammer you would really like uh, there's a book called uh Written by one of Hammer Horror's main screenwriters, I think Jimmy Sangster. Yeah, Jimmy Sangster, yeah. And, and his book is called Do You Want It Good or On Tuesday? And <laughs> it, it's called that because um, after he did the Hammer stuff, got a lot more money to do work for like Charlie's Angels and yep. DJ and the Bear and stuff and for American television, which why not good for him? And uh, they would, he would. Ask. Uh, they say, so when are you when are, when are you going to turn into scripts? And he says, do you want it good or do you want it on Tuesday? And he said, to the letter, they always said Tuesday. Yep. <laughs> so it, it's a entertaining, brief memoir I stumbled upon 
in a library. Um, and some of the more interesting things is after writing so many of the Dracula and Frankenstein films, he actually got to direct one of them that was slightly more comedic and featured David Prowl as the monster. Yep. That was, um, I think it was actually, um, Frankenstein the monster from hell. If it was David Prowse, oh, he, wow. he was Darth Vader. Yes. Yeah, I think it was uh, Frankenstein the monster from hell. And uh, Peter Cushing especially didn't like that one because he, he had to wear this, like, blonde wig, and he said it looked, made him look like Diana Rigg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, Terrence Fisher, who was, like, the, the premier director of all of great sure, Hammer yeah. films, he, he directed all of the, almost all of the, uh, with the exception of The Evil of Frankenstein, he did... He directed all the Frankenstein films, which is what makes that thread of Hammer horror films all the more stronger. But in, in some ways, I think the uh, Hammer Frankenstein films are better than the Dracula. Oh films yeah, yeah. Because it's doubt. about what an asshole Doctor Frankenstein. Is. Oh yeah, no, he's a total prick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Peter Cushing is just people have like you know kind of like given me a lot of hard, give me a hard time for this, but Peter Cushing is my favorite actor over Chris Lee in the Hammer horror reverse because just he's so much more animated and lively and fun to watch and charismatic uh, whereas Chris Lee kind of had a contention for what he did because he always played a monster yes. yep. Peter Cushing just never never shortchanged anything he just always gave it his all and you saw it on screen every time so yeah Cushing fan all the way uh, right last thing and I promise this is the last thing but it's related to what you're talking about. Oh, yeah. Uh, on YouTube, I stumbled upon a episode of This Is Your Life, where I think it's Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing is one of the people they tried out on stage. Oh. And they tell a story of how Christopher Lee and, and Peter Cushing were great friends, and Christopher Lee would, um, I guess the two of them would watch uh, Looney Tunes together, and Christopher Lee would do imitations of Foghorn Leghorn. And Christopher Lee tries to do his foghorn and leghorn, and it's terrible. <laughs> That's brilliant. I love it. So, if only footage of that. Can you imagine a oh live God, commentary yeah. of Looney Tunes from Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing? <laughs> That's great. Oh, man. All right, well, thank you very much uh, for doing this, Alex. Oh, for your yeah. time. And thank we'll, you so much. We'll I'll put I, links I, in the show notes. Love it. Um... Absolutely, and uh, um, yeah, just shoot over your end of the file on the email. Yeah, yeah, I'll uh, I'll attach the uh, Audacity file, and then yeah, you guys should be good. I hope. Sounds good. Yeah, with Audacity, you just render it out to an MP3 and send that. Yeah, yeah, that's um, how it typically works. Yeah. Great. Okay, great. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks uh, so much, Alex. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to hear your all hear y'all voices again. It's yeah, great definitely. to have you. Yeah, great. definitely. Thank you. Thanks. From Spain, I fight on them, I made, and most of them I slain as I sailed, as I sailed, and most of them I slain as I sailed.